about a month ago, we turned our clocks back an hour to end daylight savings time. And as much as I appreciated the extra hour of sleep, I quickly joined in with everyone else complaining about how much I hate the time changes and especially the extra darkness. We've spent the last month trying to recalibrate our cat, Lucy, not to wake us up at 4 a.m. for her morning meal. 5 a.m. was bad enough. The sun will set today at about 4.26, although with the rain and clouds expected all day long, it will seem even earlier for most of us. No wonder this time of year makes me want to wrap up in blankets and not go out into the cold darkness. I can feel the primal instinct of the natural world around me to power down for the winter, to conserve energy, to go hole up in a warm cave somewhere and take a long winter's nap. A brief and unofficial survey of the Internet confirms my suspicion that winter is not people's most favorite season. Spring leads the pack, followed closely by summer and fall, and winter trails far behind with only 11% of the vote. I'm actually surprised it got that much. Interestingly, however, when asked about their favorite month of the year, December does rank in the top four, along with May, June, and October, partly, mostly because of all the holidays we celebrate during December. Not everyone feels this way, however. I particularly enjoyed a meme I saw on Facebook this week. It had a beautifully win beautiful wintry scene on it, and it said, this is a season of unparalleled beauty, tradition, wonder, and magic. Too bad you're a musician. Go practice. And I would just add, or a clergy person, get to work. <laughs> Let's face it, with the exception of the occasional candlelit dinner or campfire under a starry night sky, we human beings are people of light, right? Daytime and daylight are when life really happens for most of us. That's when we get work done at our jobs, schools, around the house. That's when crops are planted and stores are open. That's when governments make decisions and economies boom. Of course, there are exceptions to this. When I think of the doctors, nurses, and first responders, the factory workers, and truck drivers who cover the night shifts, given the reality of our global society and economy, someone is always awake and working somewhere, even when we're tucked in bed for the night. But by and large, as anyone who has ever had to spend the night in an airport terminal would test, society is structured to be most active during daylight hours. And so we human beings tend to value daytime and light more than nighttime and darkness. Surely what goes on during the night isn't as important as what goes on during the day when we can see it and participate in it. The seed for our Advent theme this year was planted way back in 2016 when our family did a Texas tour, traveling around some of the must-see places in the Lone Star State like Galveston and the Alamo and what was at the time the largest gas station in the country with 120 pumps. In Austin, we made sure to visit the LBJ Presidential Library, especially since our daughter had written a paper about him in middle school, as well as Round Rock Donuts home of a tr the truly Texas-sized donut that is the equivalent of a dozen donuts in one. But the highlight for me in Austin was visiting the Congress Avenue Bridge one evening at dusk. 
The 946-foot-long bridge was built in 1910 and spans Lady Bird Lake, a wide section of the Colorado River. What makes this bridge so famous now, however, is that it is home to the largest urban bat colony in the world. Little did the architect know back in 1910, but his design included the perfect nesting place for Mexican free-tailed bats who reside under the road deck in the cracks and crevices created by the concrete components of the bridge. It is primarily a maternity colony. Pregnant bats arrive in the spring to roost until their pups are born, and then they raise them throughout the summer and the fall. It is estimated that at any one time, between three-quarters and one-and-a-half million bats live under the bridge when they're in residence. Every evening at dusk, people gather on or under the bridge, along the shore, and on boats out in the lake to watch the bats emerge en masse for their nightly feeding. While we were waiting for the magic moment that signals dinner time and the amazing exodus of the bats from their roosts, we talked with an educator who sets up a booth there every evening to educate the public about bats and their many benefits, as well as to dispel the myth and rehabilitate the bat's reputation. What we learned that night completely changed the way I look and understand these nocturnal mammals, not to mention the importance of what goes on during the night when I'm asleep. Traveling at speeds of up to 99 miles per hour, these bats will travel upwards of 40 miles to reach their feeding grounds each night where they devour between 10,000 and 30,000 pounds of insects every night. Some bat species can eat the insect equivalent of 200 quarter pounders in one night. The National Park Service estimates that bats save U.S. farmers $3.7 billion a year in pesticides and pest control. Other bat species are primary pollinators of flowers and agricultural crops. So the next time you're enjoying a margarita with tequila, thank a bat. <laughs> bat guano is actually mined from the caves that many species live in for use as fertilizer and in the production of gunpowder, making it the largest mineral export in Texas ahead of even oil. Fascinating. That evening in Austin was also the first time that I remember learning about the deleterious effects of light pollution, especially on the bats. In addition to messing with our circadian rhythms, too much artificial light has a negative impact on many species of wildlife, from fish to birds to mammals like bats. Artificial light at night disrupts migratory patterns and delays the bats from leaving their roosts, which in turn cuts down on their feeding time and can lead to malnutrition and starvation. Furthermore, artificial light attracts and often kills the very insects the bats feed on, effectively making their hunting grounds barren and interfering with the pollination of crops, too. And this is just one species. Among at least 145 nocturnal species of birds and animals, and does not begin to include the tens of thousands of species of insects who are active at night. Nighttime may not be the most important time of the day for me, but it sure is to a significant portion of life on this planet.
We heard a similar message five years later when we attended a nighttime ranger talk at Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. There we also learned about the importance of darkness, not only for animals and birds and insects, but also for plants and for us human beings and for our whole planet. Ever since, our family has supported Bat Conservation International and Dark Sky International, two organizations that are committed to uh, helping uh, create, uh, help, help this problem. And in line with our green space commitments as a church, our church selected lighting for our east parking lot out there during the capital campaign that was in line with the five principles for responsible outdoor lighting developed by Dark Sky International. So some of you may be thinking, well, this is all very interesting, or not, but, but what does this have to do with Advent and our faith? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Advent is often thought of as the season of darkness, in which we are waiting for the light of Christ to appear, as if darkness is something bad or something to be overcome, rather than part of God's good creation. In fact, throughout much of history, ever since about 800 B.C., we have assigned a negative value to darkness, whether it refers to the time of day or the color of someone's skin. And this has had serious consequences for just about every part of our lives, but most especially in our relationships with other human beings and the planet. Lest you think I'm exaggerating, stop and think for a moment. In TV shows and movies, what color do the bad guys usually wear? And the good guys? Can you think of any heroes or superheroes who wore black? Batman? Black Panther? Zorro? Maybe Harry Potter? There are a few, yep. Okay, now how about bad guys who are dressed in white? Saruman, Lord of the Rings, great, yep. The only other one I could think of was from the most recent Aquaman movie, which I don't necessarily recommend, but, uh, <laughs> but the bad guys there were white. <laughs> um, how often, what? The white witch in Narnia, yes, yes, yep. Interestingly, written by a Christian author, but yeah, we'll talk about that later. How often have you seen a bride wearing a black dress or any color other than something white or off-white? Women with black hair are more likely to be labeled vixen than blonde. In most horror movies, the scariest stuff happens at night, and the predominant color palette is black. This may sound pretty superficial to us, but these kinds of negative value judgments and stereotypes have had other serious consequences. In our Faith for Life classes over the last six or seven years, we've read a number of books together about the history of race and racism and its impact on all of us. Five years ago, when we were reading the book Waking Up White by Debbie Irving, one of the many disconcerting things we learned about was the famous doll study conducted by psychologist Kenneth and Mamie Clark back in the 1940s. When they gave young black children a choice between playing with a black doll or a white doll, they found that most black children preferred to play with white dolls. They ascribed positive characteristics to the white doll, but negative characteristics to the black doll. 
Then, upon being asked to describe the doll that looked the most like them, some of the children became emotionally upset at having to identify the doll they had just rejected. Although we'd like to think that things have changed by now, similar results and bias continue to be found today. One recent study found that the darker a person's skin color, the more likely people were to attribute immoral or criminal acts to them. This kind of bias against darkness extends far beyond childhood and the justice system into areas like access for education, housing, income potential, and health care. At the Race Amity event that we hosted here last October, we heard yet again about how darker skin color is a predictor for higher rates of everything from maternal mortality, mistaken or delayed diagnoses, and inadequate treatment, often due to erroneous stereotypes present in the medical profession like black people don't feel pain as intensely as white people do. Unfortunately, many of our biases against darkness and our use of this kind of dualistic language, light versus dark, black versus white, good versus evil, has roots in our religious language and especially in our scriptures, which go way back to long before our contemporary categories of race. And yet our scriptures have been used time and again to reinforce racial stereotypes and justify the mistreatment of people of color. Whereas some Eastern religions have a more balanced view of darkness and light, think of the Chinese symbol of yin and yang, which describes opposite but interconnected and mutually beneficial forces at the root of all life, Western Christianity has bought into a more oppositional and dualistic understanding of ourselves and God and the universe. We often put divinity, heaven, light and goodness stacked on one side against matter, darkness, earth, and evil. This may make for some good stories and movies, think Star Wars, but it has wreaked havoc in our communities, nations, and planet. We human beings have been more than successful at co-opting these categories to further our own agendas and ideologies at the expense of others. So this Advent, we're going to take a closer look at our scriptures and how we have understood them to strip away some of our assumptions and biases in the way we hear them, to come to a fuller understanding of what it means to welcome the light of the world into our lives on Christmas Day. Today we start at the very beginning, in the book of Genesis and the story of creation. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless, void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Creation begins in darkness. Then God creates light and calls it good, separates the light from the darkness, calls light day and dark night, and that's the end of the first day. Three days later, God creates sun, moon, and stars to provide order and rhythm to the light and the darkness. And then God calls that good, too. Now, I grew up believing that whatever God does is good. So God creating the universe is good. And light is good, along with the sun, moon, and stars. But within our Western dualistic mindset, the assumption is that whatever was before creation, like the darkness and the emptiness, was not good. 
In fact, some translations actually paint a pretty bleak picture. The Good News Bible that I was given in Sunday school and read when I was a child says this. In the beginning, when God created the universe, the earth was formless and desolate. The raging ocean that covered everything was engulfed in total darkness. Yikes. Didn't sound like a very nice place to me as a young child. But the text itself doesn't include those value judgments. Darkness and emptiness are not necessarily bad things. And if we look further around the rest of the Hebrew Bible, we discover that darkness is actually God's chosen dwelling place. When God invites Moses up on the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, God is shrouded in thick darkness. When King Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant into the newly built temple, he declares, the Lord has said that he will dwell in thick darkness. Later in Isaiah, God declares, I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I, the Lord, do all these things. If God created the darkness, then it too is part of God's good creation. What if instead of entering Advent this year, dreading the darkness, or assuming that it is something to be endured and overcome with light, what if instead we entered more fully into this season of darkness and sought God's presence within the very darkness itself? In our first lesson, the psalmist assures us that we cannot go anywhere that God is not already present. Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, but even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Darkness and light are one in the same to God, part of God's good creation and necessary for life as God created it. One of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible comes from the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. God with us. Emmanuel. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Let us enter into the darkness of this Advent season that we might discover God with us in new ways, in unexpected places and people, in every circumstance of our lives and our life together. Amen.